0: A lot of creativity is really just keeping your eyes open and and noticing things, you know, Um, noticing a connection between two things so that you suddenly go, wow, that's cool. I've never thought about that before.
1: You are listening to Change Lab Conversations on Transformation and Creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Center College of Design. Jeff Goodby is an advertising legend whose humanity and humility have propelled him to the peak of a profession not necessarily known for either. Imagine an ad man as clever and visionary as Don Draper, minus the chain smoking and cynicism, and you begin to get a sense of the scope of Jeff's influence in the advertising industry. As co-founder of Goodby, Silverstein and Partners, Jeff has been the driving force behind some of the most groundbreaking campaigns and indelible taglines in recent memory. He famously coined "Got Milk, a slogan that became a cultural trope that has endured for decades, spawning legions of derivations and a whole cottage industry of merchandise bearing his inspired catchphrase. Among his many other memorable campaigns are the Cheetos Museum, the famous Carlos Saturn commercial, and his work naming and rebranding the gaming giant Electronic Arts. Jeff and his longtime partner Rich Silverstein just received the 2019 Cannes Lion Lifetime Achievement Award among the top honors in their field. The two met nearly 40 years ago in San Francisco when their lionized boss Hal Reine paired them up and created a partnership that would be among the most durable and influential in the business. I've long admired Jeff, a former Art Center trustee, as both a creative leader and as a human. So it was my great pleasure to speak with him for this episode of Change Lab. Over the course of our lively and illuminating conversation, Jeff and I explored his upbringing during the golden age of brands, his transition from journalism to advertising, and his commitment to creating change by treating people with respect and raising the level of conversation on the airwaves, and in our heads. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Goodby. I wanna begin by asking you a little bit about your background. Um, You know, I've been able to certainly read about your comments about your mother, who was an artist and a painter, and your dad who was more business-minded, and those things seem to have merged well in you and to maybe use that as a starting point to get a sense of uh, the creative sensibility you carried as a kid. If you can sort Mm. of take yourself back and articulate who you were, how your creativity was expressed, how it took shape.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I was thinking about this recently. You know, America, it was the 50s when I was a kid, and people really believed in the idea of brands and brand design and packaging and and we didn't have the cynicism about it that we do now we came out of world war 2 and i think people were just so happy to be back in life and my mother had this f- faith in brands that was unbelievable it you know and when i went over to somebody else's house and you know they had you know, Miracle Whip instead of Hellman's Mayonnaise, it would freak me out, you know? I mean, I can just remember thinking the comfort that came with, a, with, that, with that familiarity. And uh, I know that that had something to do with me being doing this today. I know it did, <laughs> just because, because it was just such a great simplification of life. Not just in an intellectual sense, but in a graphic sense. You know, those beautiful, simple packages in big colors. And, you know, some of the first memories I have of are of, you know, touching my mother's cigarette pack, the Winston pack, and looking at it. Brillo packages, things like that. And um, I know that that affected me a lot. I think what else affected me was growing up in a neighborhood that had a lot of different kinds of kids, different um, socioeconomic strata kids, you know, so that uh, I was with kids that weren't all that fortunate and with kids that were pretty fortunate and still in a place where people would beat me up and uh, take my lunch and stuff. And I think that was uh, helpful in a way. It prepared me for this business. And And I also think, you know, my mother, I make a lot of that about my mother teaching me how to paint and draw and so on. She would teach me about shadows and light can remember her setting things up and making me draw them um thinking about shapes and and heads and how faces worked and so on and you know in, in, in time she uh, let me mess around with her with her oil paints which was fun because the smell is really addictive <laughs> still my favorite part of oil painting is the smell but it was important to have her try to increase the technology of what I was doing, not just give me a box of crayons and expect me to amuse myself. And, you know, in later life, I tell people, I'm just so thankful for being able to draw things because, you know, in the middle of a meeting, I can just grab a piece of paper, draw something, hold it up, and people go, oh, I see. That's great. You know, I draw my own storyboards. I, you know, I still, I still do a lot of drawing and painting.
1: Let's fast forward. We'll go to higher ed, and you major in journalism.
0: I didn't. I, maj- I majored in English. Weirdly oh, you enough, you majored in and, English. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be a writer. I was on the Harvard Lampoon, and I wrote uh, funny pieces and drew cartoons, and um, I really enjoyed that. You know, I thought that that's probably what I'd be doing. Uh, when I graduated, I started. Uh, I started working at a newspaper which was not funny, but uh, fun. And I think, you know, it taught me to do things quickly and to care about what people at the other end thought. I was listening to something that Bill Bernbach, the famous advertising guy, said recently. He said, "It's, it's really important to, at some point, not just write for yourself, but care about whether the person at the other end is really being communicated with in any way. And I, I think that working at a newspaper made me make that transition. I had to care about whether the things that I did were clear. Right. I think that working in an editorial space like that, where you're not selling somebody something, you're just giving them information, was very important for me. And my partner, Rich Silverstein, worked at Rolling Stone before he, we, he did. He became an advertising person. So I think both of us have this you know, past in which we had to entertain people, make beautiful things, engage people without any purpose beyond giving them information, beyond giving them something pretty. And so I think that that's affected the advertising that we've done. You know, I think our our advertising is more like journalism than other people's. We're not didactic. We try to approach people at a higher level.
1: So let's talk about that transition in your career to advertising.
0: And how did that happen? I moved to San Francisco because my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, didn't like living on the East Coast that much. And I said, you know, okay, I'll move to California where she was born. But the only place I want to live is San Francisco because I think it's the only place in the state that I can handle. And um, she said, okay, let's try it. So we moved here and uh, started interviewing. And I was going to trying to get a newspaper job or a magazine job because that's what I was doing. And I decided uh, that wasn't really working, so maybe I could think of something else to do. And I thought back to being in college and being at the library, looking at design and advertising magazines like graphics and communication arts and things like that, which I always thought were pretty cool. And I had grown up in the atmosphere of the, you know, when I was a, a teenager, the the advertising was pretty good. And, you know, so I remembered the Volkswagen ads and the eltser ads and things like that, and um, I thought maybe I could do that. There was no internet, so I got the yellow pages out, started going from one agency to the next, just calling them up. I had no idea what what I would find, and um, I wasn't having much luck getting any traction at these places with my my newspaper portfolio and drawings um, and one day. The creative director at McCann Erickson, Charles Martell, told me that I would have to go home and write some advertising if I wanted an advertising job. And he gave me a little formula for that, which was um, make believe you're working at an agency where they're doing a great job on some account and uh, write three more ads on that account, make believe you work there, and then uh, pick a campaign that you really hate and uh, write three of those, fix fix, uh, those campaigns. And then he, the best thing that he said was to write a one-page autobiography so that you could use that instead of your resume. And uh, he said, make it funny and engaging and make it, make it show that you would be a fun guy to, to work around. So I did that, and I took that portfolio out, and I just happened to walk into J. Walter Thompson in San Francisco on the day when they got the Standard Oil of California account, And um, as somebody described it to me, they could afford to fire you. So they might hire you. (laughs) I said, okay.
1: Then they did. And it was with that portfolio that got you into it. Yeah, that
0: portfolio. And Um, by the way,
1: just out of curiosity, do you remember that portfolio? Do you remember that autobiography you wrote? Do you remember the the, the ads you did? did. Yeah. Were they any good?
0: So I thought some of the ads were pretty good. I don't, uh, the Stu Hyatt who hired me at, J. Walter Thompson said it wasn't the ads that made us hire you; it was the autobiography, which was uh, an entry in an encyclopedia. Basically, like I was dead, and uh, and I'd already had my whole career. So. You know, the the entry began with, like, facts about my real life, where I was born, what I studied in college and everything, that I was a journalist. And then when it got up to the the very present day, when I was going to J. Walter Thompson, say, I put in J. Walter Thompson at that point and then started to imagine wild and uh, unlimited success at that place. Uh, And then, of course, I went to another place and another place, and my my career just... uh, you know, catapulted in all kinds of outlandish ways. Um, I, I think I ran for president or something by the end of it. And, um, and so it was, in a way, it was kind of an interactive piece. You know, I would put in uh, a new agency every time I went to a new interview. <laughs> and that would be the thing that set off the outlandish part of the, the resume. Right. And that wasn't
1: an easy task in those days. You couldn't just word process it in, right? You had to type the whole thing out again. You right? had
0: to type the whole thing again. Yeah. You're absolutely right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, well, I want to get to your partnership with uh, Rich Silverstein, but maybe some key moments along the way, particularly interested in your relationship with Hal Reine and, and Sure. Maybe if you can actually tell listeners who that is and the influence he had on you and your career.
0: Well, while I was working at Jay Walter, I'd never heard of Hal Reine. And um, I worked on some good assignments. And so I, I happened to write a, an animated campaign for Chevron that... Uh, Hal saw, and Hal was interviewing a partner of mine at, uh, at Jay Walter, actually. And Hal said, um, who, who writes that animated thing? And he said, oh, Jeff Goodby. And so one day, Hal calls me up at about 5 o'clock at work and uh, says, I'd uh, really like to talk to you for a minute and uh, come over and, and see me and uh, pay for the cab. And I didn't know who he was. But I got off the phone. And I told one of the writers there, older guy, and he said, this guy, this guy said, are you kidding? You don't know who Al Rani is. And I said, actually don't. And he said, uh, you have an interview with God. I said, okay. Um, I guess that's good. And he said, yeah, it's the best place to work. And only a handful of people there. And uh, you're lucky to get that call. See what you can make of it. So I went over there and um, Hal was... You know, he's a famously grumpy person. He was in the midst of doing the Henry Weinhardt's beer campaign at the time, which won all kinds of awards in the Grand Prix at Cannes Film Festival and stuff.
1: Over a hundred years ago, good entertainment was as rare as a good beer. Here you got a new piano player. Hope he's better than the last one. Henry Weinhardt made finding a good beer easier. Uh, Gentlemen, text velvet. Thank you. Thank you you are beautiful right now, entertainment like however was a still a long life. ways off she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes come on you know the
0: words he was like a, a very different character in advertising from the east coast characters that had run the business for decades you know sort of a, um gray suited guys hal was a guy who thought of himself as a westerner. He had grown up in Seattle, and um, he was an outdoorsman and, you know, kind of a Hemingway type. He didn't like the people in New York very much. He certainly didn't want to think like them, and uh, he thought there was a better America than than existed in the cities, and he tried to bring that out in his work. You know, a lot of his work had optimistic people sitting on porches um, celebrating the Fourth of July, and you know, he went on to uh, write It's Morning Again in America for President Reagan to get him re-elected. And, you know, that's what he was like. It's morning again
1: in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history.
0: They would derogatorily refer to it as folksy kind of approach to things, but I think it was something bigger than that. I think he realized that emotion was what made people do things.
1: Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago?
0: And he appealed to that emotion. Yeah, so I, the interview went well, and he said, well, maybe you'd like to come over and work here. And I said, okay. And I went back to Thompson, and I quit without really thinking out, thinking it all out. And I called up Hal's assistant, Nikki, and I said, uh, hey, you know, I think Hal hired me, and... Um, He didn't say when I should come in or anything like that. And she sort of half covered the phone up and says, there's a Jeff Goodby on the phone. Uh, He says that you hired him. (laughs) House in the distance says, well, if he says that, I guess I did. Well, he wants to know when he should come in. I don't know. Have him come in on Saturday. So I went in on Saturday and started working on a new business pitch with twenty five other people there's a very small place at the time he's a fascinating guy and clearly a
1: major figure in the history of your career, right I mean he he shaped a lot of I mean even as you were citing those various elements and things that he taught you it's it's interesting
0: absolutely and of course it put he put me together with Silverstein like I came over to work for Hal and I worked with with him, Dennis McVeigh, for a while, who's a graduate of art Center by the way, worked with him for a while, and then one day hal said you might want to work with this new guy I hired on this thing. And I said okay, and it was Silverstein, and uh, you know, and we were we were such different people, which I think was it's it's really good to work with somebody who's not exactly like you. It, you know, you, you don't just have somebody reinforcing your own ideas; you have somebody pushing those ideas out and disagreeing with them, and making sure you don't get too caught up in them. That's been very helpful. We're, we're such different people, you know. I'm um, slow and considered and circumspect, and he's really fast and makes his mind up quickly and wants to get it over with. So it's been good in that respect. That was one of the best things that happened there. The other best things are all craft-oriented. You know, Hal was such a craftsman. His, His standards were so high of photography and film, and, you know, he taught me to make timelines of the commercials that we did so that he had... You know, the the visuals above the timeline and the um, sound below the timeline, and you'd have it all worked out before you went and shot a film, you know, second by second. And uh, I'd never seen anything like that, you know. People at other agencies wrote a script, hoped that it was funny, took it to a director and said, can you make this into a commercial? Hal, Hal would not let you do that. He wanted you to figure the whole thing out before you went there and know what you were about to undertake. So back to
1: your relationship with Rich Silverstein. Mm. So he puts you together. You're working well together. You're complementing each other. You got a good dance going. Yeah. And in 1983, you decide you're going to partner up and start your own firm.
0: Well, yeah. While we were there, we met Andy Berlin, who was another writer at Hal's Place, and as so often happens in life, you know, Andy was very unhappy in a place where Rich and I were very happy. And so he was always like, let's go start a company. Let's go do something on our own. Well, a, a freelance account came along called Amazing Software. So we started freelancing. And the first thing we, we did was rename this company Electronic Arts. It was a computer game company. became very big. At the time, computer games were kind of like little floppy disks sold in plastic bags that were stuck on a hook. <laughs> and uh, we had come from the world of record albums. So we made like little record albums that were about mm-hmm. as big as CD mm-hmm. cases that held them. And, you know, and Andy and I would write extensive uh, humorous and, and poetic weird copy for them, Rich designed these beautiful things. And um, we started doing like cover after cover after cover because EA was succeeding and um, it became clear that we could start a company with the income that we had from it. One day, we just went down and quit. Rented a room, $500 a month, down near the wharf in San Francisco, and sat around waiting for the one telephone that we had to ring. And when it did, it was usually one of our friends asking us if we were okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was adventurous and, and good. It was a, It was a good thing to do.
1: I'm interested in trying to deconstruct advertising. What Mm. makes it work? How it operates. I have a lot of a lot of questions about that. But I think maybe what a a good way to go about that is to talk specifics and then maybe extrapolate from that. So, at the risk of putting you through something you've been through many many times before, let's start with Got Milk? (laughs) And maybe I'll, I'll give you a slightly different angle on this, if that's imaginable. But this is a podcast about the creative process, so. In a way, if you could take that angle and describe how the Got Milk campaign developed and what the creative process was behind it.
0: Sure. We were asked to pitch the Fluid Milk Processors of California account. And they had been doing advertising for years under the tagline, milk does a body good, and they would have like sexy women and men and looking real strong. People riding bikes and chugging milk, and you looked at it and you went, "Nobody does that." Come on, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, we did some focus groups, and someone at a focus group that John Steele was talking to said, uh, "The only time I notice milk is if I run out of it. I don't think about it otherwise." And we went, "Oh, that's interesting." When you run out of it, so we started thinking about what approach could we use to that, and. And we went to show the the idea to the milk processing board. And one of my planners came up and said, you know, there's a whole section here about, you know, running out of milk. Like, what happens? What should we call it? And I said, call it got milk, question mark. And she said, I think it would be better if it said got enough milk. And I said, no, just make it say Got Milk. I think it'll be cooler, kind of short like that. So she put it on a foam core board. During the meeting, I was looking at this thing going, that's like a killer tagline. Nobody's ever done a tagline as short and weird as that. I wonder if we could just come up with big shaggy dog stories that we tell. And it turns out that at the end, the thing that's missing is that a person didn't have milk. And so I went to the creative department and I told them, let's do something like that. And they went... What are you talking about? A couple of them said, that's a terrible tagline. I said, okay, here's a sample commercial. I don't know if you've seen Steven Spielberg's first movie, but it's called Duel. And it's about a guy that's being chased by a semi-trailer truck. It's like a horror movie. I said, imagine Duel, where one semi-trailer truck is being chased by another, and the guy in front is like, why is this guy chasing me? Holy shit. I'd like to report a truck driver that's been endangering my life. In that case, I'll have to give you the police, sir. Right, well, give me the police. And at the end, you know, you find out that the guy in the front is a uh, milk truck, and the guy in the back is a cookie truck, and the guy's in back, his, his mouth is full of cookies, and it says, got milk, okay? <laughs> I said, that's that's like a dumb version of what I want for commercials. And they went, oh, okay, we see. And, uh, you know, we went forward with it.
1: So I just want to return to this moment of you do this focus group, somebody yeah. makes this comment, and then out of Goodby's spontaneous mind, again, this kind of almost improvisational thought comes Got Milk.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and you know what? I have no idea how that happens. Um, I just know... Right. Maybe I'm just a chronic oversimplifier.
1: But what also interests me is it came spontaneously, and then when somebody suggested that you amend it, you were a man of your convictions. You knew that it shouldn't be, right? You knew that actually the word enough between those two words would have ruined a great idea.
0: (laughs) It It would have ruined it. It would have ended the whole thing right there. Right there. It would have just been a foam core board. But you knew that having just left the gate on the idea. Uh, Yeah, I guess I did. I mean, that's what I mean. A lot of creativity is really just keeping your eyes open and and noticing things, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. noticing a connection between two things so that you suddenly go, wow, that's cool. I've never thought about that before.
1: Do you think that Got Milk tapped into some kind of cultural zeitgeist of the time?
0: I think it had an astonishing honesty to it. Like, they weren't selling you anything. They were just going... You got any of it? <laughs> right. And it wasn't even a company. It was not even a company. It was its own brand. And of course, the, the milk processors, they would rather have not have it be so brandy because if you were the, you know, the clover milk guy, got milk got sort of bigger than your, than your own milk brand did. Exactly. Yeah. And I think going back to the 50s and the simplicity of the packages we were talking about, I think it had that. You know? It had that feeling of lasting simplicity it.
1: Yeah. Now, the award-winning, amazingly funny, uh, Michael Bay directed another Arts Center alum. Yes. Aaron Burr, Hamilton spot. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was behind it? How did that evolve? What was the creative process that informed that? Maybe even as I say this to you, Jeff, if you could also just give a quick description of what that spot was.
0: I think one of the things that the Got Milk campaign did was it asked you to you know, have a really big, lush story that ended with this tiny little crumb of a tagline at the end, and that the the crashing to that tiny little ending was really pleasurable. So, what kind of big stories could we do? You know, we thought up this and that. And one of the stories that came in was from Scott Burns, who's now a director and writer. He had a I must say, really bare bones kind of thing where a guy had called a uh, talk show and a, um, a contest was going on and they would make a random call to somebody. And this guy picked the phone up and his um, his mouth was full of, uh, full of cake and so he couldn't answer the, the question or the guy didn't understand his answer. And I said, you know, we, we need to make this more elaborate. It's too small. And uh, I was reading <laughs> Gore Vidal's uh, biography of Aaron Burr at the time, and I think I mentioned Aaron Burr in passing. And he and Chuck McBride and Eric Joyner, who uh, is another alum, I believe, went out and cobbled together this spot. And there were a lot of moving parts. So, it, it, so it's about a man who is a big fan of, of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton and the duel that they had in uh, the 1780s, and basically he is the guy who ends up being called randomly by the radio station. Random call with today's $10,000 question. And then asked... It's a tough one. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? Who uh, killed Alexander Hamilton in the famous duel? All right, let's go to the phones and see who's out there. And as he's thinking about the answer, owned by, I forgot to mention, that this guy is a freak for Aaron Burr. Around his apartment, there's paraphernalia everywhere about Aaron Burr. He's got paintings of Aaron Burr and statues <laughs> and busts and, and just absolutely memorable. He even has the actual bullet at the end of this little display case. And, um, and Michael Bay, the director, just tricked this out and made it an unforgettable set. And anyway, so the guy the guy gets the call.
1: Hello? Hello.
0: For ten thousand dollars, who sh- And they can't understand his answer. And um, for ten thousand uh, dollars, once again, who killed? And the guys like saying. <laughs> <laughs> and they can't. Doesn't get understood. Well, hold on, let me and says, okay. Well, sorry. Sorry. We'll call you next time. Sorry, maybe next time. Better luck next time. It hangs up and it says, got milk at the end. Got milk. The whole thing is just a, I, you know, it's probably the, the best single commercial I've ever worked on. It's it's put together perfectly.
1: It's completely brilliant. And it has a kind of life to it and hilarity to it and cleverness to it that I want to get to because I, as we figure out what advertising might be and when it really works, that's mm-hmm. a great example. So let's just talk a bit about some of your others that I love. I just, you know, chose my favorites. The Cheetos Museum campaign, a more recent (laughs) one from 2017.
0: The Cheetos Museum is probably the thing that when I give talks now, people, they ask about that more than anything else. And, you know, the idea was just simply everybody that's eaten Cheetos in their life has looked at them and gone that one kind of looks like a cat, you know, or something. And and we went, let's just make a museum out of these things. Let's have a contest where you get like pr- cash prizes for sending in pictures of Cheetos that look like certain things. And so I think we got a $60,000 cash prize out of Frito-Lay to start the thing. But then we, we started putting posting the thing online and it was really popular. And uh, so we went, let's make a physical museum. Let's actually get these uh, Cheetos from people and not just have them send pictures, and we'll display them. So we displayed them in Grand Central Station like they were an art thing. <laughs> and then people started like uh, selling them on eBay to each other. It was crazy. They were selling Cheetos on eBay.
1: That looked like Abe Lincoln and, and the Statue of Liberty and that kind of thing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Statue of Liberty. And then one guy had a Cheeto that looked like Harambe. <laughs> And that got bid up to $100,000 on, on eBay. And, they, and they, did a, they did a thing about it on the, the news section of Saturday Night Live. A Cheeto that looks like
1: the gorilla Harambe was sold on eBay for nearly $100,000. The buyer is actually a little like
0: Harambe. So the thing just took off like crazy. It just because it was based on something that was true and that, you know, it didn't seem like advertising. What would you say makes a Cheetos masterpiece? It's all about clarity of shape and depth of color. Only one can be the best. Any prediction of which wing it will come from. (laughs) Who among us can say where great Cheeto art comes from? Flamin' Heart. Actually, it comes from the cheesy side.
1: Definitely. What do you see in your Cheetos? The other one is the Saturn Corporation ad. So powerful. I mean, you were clearly making the point about the company that thinks about people before it thinks about anything
0: else. That was the point. We had just started to work for Saturn at that point, and Jamie Barrett came up with this idea for this commercial where people were just walking around in the street and acting like cars. And so people were, you know, they were they're in the lanes out on naked freeways with nothing there except for people all moving in unison down these lanes and people parked in parking spaces waiting and, you know, a cop having stopped someone with no car around him. And uh, things like that, and at the end, it just said, uh, you know, when we design our cars, we don't think of sheet metal. We think of the people who will one day drive them with some Bach underneath it, and it was fantastic. When we design our cars, we don't see sheet metal. We see the people who may one day drive them. It was an amazing thing to do a car commercial with no cars in it, the absence of cars was amazing. I mean, and there it is again.
1: I mean, it creates something that makes you think and makes you engage in a way and trigger something. I mean, all these examples, all three of these examples that we've talked about, Got Milk and the Cheetos and the Saturn commercial, they're all triggering something in the imagination of the viewer and engaging us in a certain kind of way. One of the things I like to do at Art Center is I have a rotating gallery of student work in my office. But there's one piece that's part of my permanent collection, and it's a second-term advertising project, and it's a Rawlings ad for Rawlings Baseball. Okay. And it says, every Hall of Fame ball has two signatures. One is always the same. Rawlings.
0: (laughs) That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah.
1: That works. I mean, it's just cool, right? These projects that we were talking about, and I could have asked you about 20 of them. Oh, thanks. What happens when it works? What goes on when advertising works? What happens?
0: Well, I I believe that a lot of it is that tone of voice that we were talking about, something that respects your intelligence and welcomes you in and you want to see it again. Hal once said to me, you know, people don't mind being sold to as long as they know that's what's happening and it's done really well. And I think a lot of those rules have been broken in the last 10 or 20 years, you know. A lot of advertising is not done really well, and it doesn't tell you that it's advertising. And there's a certain amount of um, entertainment that goes into it that's that's very important to provide. And if it's not there, people resent it or they, they don't welcome it into their lives and they don't want to see it again. And so I tell our clients there's perfectly good advertising out there. That is not that doesn't respect your intelligence, that just works by repetition or nasty uh, music or something, and it works fine. And then there's really intelligent advertising. and You know what that is? That works fine, and we just choose to do the latter, <laughs> frankly.
1: Right, right. You know, as I was preparing for this conversation and, and looking at your work and thinking about all of this, the word clever kept coming to mind. And, yeah. you know, cleverness is something that I've never really focused on in any kind of depth um, before, but these examples kind of brought it up. Cleverness connotes, you know, part creative, part intelligent, part funny, part emotional, part Mm -hmm. ironic, and it's got all these different elements to it. And it seems like there is a kind of thrill of cleverness that we get when something like you create Um, It's so clever. Clever seems to be the right word for it.
0: I think it's a good word. I mean, I think of people like Oscar Wilde when I think of clever, and they take a situation that's, you know, a comment about somebody's clothes or a dinner party or something, and they elevate it to something much bigger. And maybe that's what uh, good advertising does at its best, is it just surprises you at how much can be done with a very small piece of media. You know, right? And also, I think there's that. I wish I'd said that. That you think when you hear Oscar Wilde or someone like that. And I think good ads are like that. That you think, oh man, that must have been so much fun to make that. I wish I'd done that. You know?
1: Yeah. They're also like really good or meaningful jokes,
0: right? People appreciate the jokes, and they they appreciate that the jokes solve a problem elegantly at the same time. So that joke about Aaron Burr comes back around to milk, to a truth about milk. And the, the, the Saturn commercial comes back around to a truth about people in their cars. You know, and the, the, why own a car if it's not thinking about you, if it's not made for you? Right. And right. these are truths. And I think people appreciate it when something clever, like you say, serves truth.
1: The other really interesting part of this, too, is your concept of mass intimacy. Mm-hmm which is labeling something that, uh, frankly, I've always been aware of when it comes to pop music and songs that, you know, I listen to, you know, songs that everybody knows, but it's mine. It's personal. (laughs) It's intimate to me. I own that song by Bob Dylan, even though everybody, (laughs) gazillion people know it, right?
0: That is so true. And and when you first heard it, it spoke to you.
1: Yeah, and still does, by the way. It's mine, right?
0: It's a wonderful effect. And of course, it happens in The mass word has gotten bigger and bigger. You know, at one time, mass was the circulation of a magazine. You know, it was 100,000, 200,000. Then it became a TV channel. And sometimes that was a million. And then it became the Super Bowl. And suddenly that was 100 million. And now it's the internet and it's billions of people yet you can still find ways of being intimate with them if you uh, play your cards right and come up with a Cheetos museum, like you said, that was not ever advertised in traditional ways. People just felt like it spoke to them. That's an intelligent kind of humor that I am proud to be a part of.
1: Okay, so I want to open up a whole different part of this conversation and try to understand advertising today and... At Art Center in our advertising program, I mean, we're wrestling with this so much, but I'm I'm very curious to know how you're thinking about it. And I'm talking specifically about the whole concept of influencers on social media, this notion of people somehow on social media are seeking out or responding to these personal guides, right? And that influences become this new authority in our culture and are really the forces of persuasion for how people think about what they want to purchase, what they want to go forward with, the brands they prefer, the fashions they prefer. It doesn't have the same control, or to use a pun, it doesn't have the same agency.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm I don't think that the mechanism is that much different from, you know, having um, Willie Mays smoke a certain cigarette in a in a magazine ad, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Uh, interesting. Or, or, <laughs> or to have... You know, having Bob Dylan mention Chevrolet in some song, and suddenly there's a spike in Chevy sales or something. Uh-huh. I don't know whether it's all that different from that. I just feel like people are more conscious of it, you know. And uh, I do think that it's a it's a chapter, and I think the chapter will end, and be superseded by things that are better than that. Frankly, I mean, I feel a certain fatigue happening, and I do think that we will graduate. Brands will graduate to something bigger. I believe that they will sponsor entertainment that is not branded entertainment. You'll have a BMW channel that you go to to watch a certain series or a certain um, documentary. And people will go, you know, what's it on tonight? It's on BMW. It's on Ford. It's on uh, Frito-Lay. And I believe that the magnanimity of the things that we give people as advertisers is going to be stepped up significantly by that kind of a a mechanism. uh, You know, we make so much stuff. You know, we we have makers inside the company. And I think that makes us unusual as an advertising agency. And, you know, it speaks to art center graduates and how much they have to learn. You know, we have animators and filmmakers and, you know, graphic designers and engineers that electrical engineers and mechanical engineers that make things here so that it's not just a bunch of writers and art directors anymore. And those are, in many ways, those are people that are inventing new media, new ways of doing things with people. You know, we did a, a virtual reality experience for the Dolly Museum where you put on a headset and walk inside a Dolly painting, you know? Right. And we did that all in-house. We learned all of the wireframe animation ourselves and, you know, thought it all up and did it.
1: Yeah, I've gone online to see it, and it's it's an amazing experience. I mean, Dolly is also perfect to do it with, too.
0: You know? Yeah, we're doing yeah. another thing with him right now, where we actually bring the man back to life through a, a thing called deepfake, which is uh, allows you to put the face of one person onto a, the body of another, and the face of the first person actually emotes in the same way that the the second person did. And um, so, Dolly is being. Brought back to life, Uh, we found a guy who speaks Lake Dali, and he's a Barcelonan. And we we will bring him back to life and have him talk about things that are going on around the museum today. Mm -hmm. When you get to the museum, he'll talk about the baseball score for the the, uh, Tampa Bay Rays and the weather outside today it's uncanny.
1: You know, you spent years being a a really well-celebrated and appreciated trustee at Art Center, Mm, And uh, to bring you back into our world a little bit, what's the challenge today? How do we need to think about teaching our students about advertising? What should we be focusing their attention on?
0: Probably what I was just talking about, realizing that advertising is just such a wide kind of swath of a business right now that you have to know so much about so many things. And it's not just a matter of you know, getting into it because you're a writer or a filmmaker like I wanted to get into it for, but that you suddenly have to think in these crazy, odd ways about, you know, making a uh, an app on a phone that turns images into Cheetos and things like that. Suddenly, it's a much more expansive business. And it's, as uh, Bob Greenberg at RGA said to me, once you start thinking that way, it's exhausting for a while. And then it, then it's liberating and you start coming up with ideas that That you never would have come up with and Mm -hmm. it is exhausting it's exhausting you sit there and go like oh my god animation photoshop writing go to the movies ride the bus take in the way people look they're expecting me to do all of that well yeah i am i'm expecting you to do all of it at a certain level so that you can put it all together and make things that are new it's a lot to study and i think advertising can you know it can get simple and limited if you're not careful the things that will get you a job are still things that delight people, but they have a much greater complexity to them than, than they used to.
1: I want to reach out philosophically a little bit more and just ask you about a couple of things that you have said that really intrigued me. One is you said that you're obsessed with unknowing. Mm. And I have to tell you, this has become a kind of theme of this podcast, of a kind of really brilliant creative people talk about cultivating the unknown as a way into creativity. And I think I remember somewhere that, that I read, you actually cite Keats's negative capability. You kind <laughs> of celebrate this place of uncertainty as a creative space. And I would love for you to talk more about that.
0: I think it comes out of, a lot of times, approaching problems and going, how do I get all this stuff that's been done before to solve this problem out of my head? How am I going to do that? I can't make believe it's not there. So in a way, you have to come up with this artificial kind of stance of making believe you don't know it. You know, it's a it's an unknowing process. And if you don't go through that process, I think that you tend to take things from the past, mix them together, hope nobody notices that it's half of this and half of that. So in a way, you know, it's it's like learn everything you can about a certain thing and then try to get it all out of your head. And that's not an easy thing to do, but I think it's very important. You know, people like Picasso talked about drawing with the opposite hand so that things happened that you couldn't really control, you know, and it's that's a kind of unknowing process. I think creativity is enhanced by at least trying to unknow what you know about something.
1: Another way of putting it maybe is creativity is about a willingness to go into a place of uncertainty, so as you're making it, you are discovering what it needs to
0: be. Exactly. It is an uncertain place. It's you're there by yourself and there's there aren't any signposts, you know?
1: This is some of the most interesting <laughs> stuff in the world to me. <laughs> you know, of how we think about creativity and what this not knowing is and how rich a place it really is.
0: It is the most interesting thing in the world because it's it is what makes children interesting to us, you know, that that, mm. that feeling that they can see something new that you've never seen in You know, I think it's important to cultivate that all your life.
1: So a related statement that you've made, though it gets into something else about sort of cultural exchange and, you know, the fundamental plagiarism, I suppose, of all creative activity. And you talk about advertising and vandalism, mm. which is a really, really lovely word to use <laughs> in that particular case. I was just intrigued by that and w- would love to know what you mean by that and what you're thinking about when you say that.
0: Well, my, my public relations person in the firm here, when I first came up with this vandalism word, she was like, do not use that word. <laughs> That is not a good word for you. (laughs) No, it's how I feel. You know, we used to do naughty things in my neighborhood when I was a kid. And, you know, we'd go over to um, Mr. Mastretta's and throw eggs at his house at night. Not for any reason, not even because we hated him, but just because he reacted to it. And the reason that I think vandalism is apropos to me is that good advertising is kind of like good vandalism. You know, you do something... You put it out there, and you just can't wait to see people's reactions to it. You know, you spray-painted a wall. You threw eggs at Mr. Mastretta. You waxed the windows of the school with a bunch of naughty words that could be read from inside the school. And you just wait to see what happens. And that's that's a really good feeling in advertising if you have something that good that you can't wait to see what people make of it.
1: I want to ask just a final question before we wrap up, and that has to do with the question of change you have said, I quote you, that ads change our minds about our lives. I'm interested, I guess it's a twofold question about change, how that occurs or how you think advertising actually does create change on the one hand, and then a, maybe a more personal sense of how you think about the change that you influence in the world and how important that is to you.
0: Well, it's, certainly a lot of advertising has affected change. You know, there you can... You can think back to the things that changed you in the same way that a Bob Dylan song changed you. When you heard it, I think that a piece of advertising can do that too. You know, in, in 1984, a Macintosh commercial, a, a great Nike commercial about Colin Kaepernick, you know, uh, just a, a, th- a thing that's hard to un, to, to forget, to unthink. You know, it's in your head and you can't get it out. It sticks with you and for positive reasons. And it does change you. And, it, and I think it does two things. It makes you a little smarter I think, and a little more expansive, and you feel good about yourself. But you also realize that there are more people out there like you, you know, I mean, I think we, we experience advertising, like, like a lot of mass media, we experience it as a single person by ourselves sitting in the house. But we also go, wow, everybody else is experiencing this at exactly the same second. I can't wait to get to work and talk to these guys about this. That's a wonderful effect, and it's certainly capable of changing the world. And is influencing change, just on a personal level, in terms of
1: what motivates Jeff Goodby, is creating change in the world important to you? Is that something that you reach for?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly certainly have done a lot of things, you know, politically and uh, environmentally that I feel good about, but I think the the greater change I hope I've been able to do is, is to just treat people with respect and kind of bring up the... The general level of the conversation and the level of thought and the level of humor on the airwaves and in our heads, you know, and um, if we did a little bit of that, I'd be happy.
1: Nice. Well, listen, Jeff, I don't know who uh, thought of the ad for the uh, most interesting man in the world, but uh, in my eyes, you qualify. Oh, thank you. uh, And it's just been a complete delight to talk with you today and explore these issues and Thank you for taking the time to do it.
0: You did a terrific job. You did your homework, man. I appreciate it.
1: Well, you're great to talk to, and you're an important part of this community, and I hope I get to see you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your time. I will see you
0: soon, I hope. Change
1: Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer, Christine Spines. Co-producer, Luis Silva. Editor, Emily Van Bergen. And post-production supervisor and production consultant, Christopher Olin.